0: Matthew 20, verses 20 through 23. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked, she said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Good evening and welcome again. We trust that you've had a good Father's Day. We're grateful for the opportunity to be together tonight. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 20, the passage that Austin read just a moment ago, as we think about true greatness in the kingdom of God. And as we look at Matthew chapter 20, we're going to be focusing on verses 20 through 28, and there is a companion passage found in Mark, the 10th chapter. And tonight I want us to look specifically at Matthew chapter 20 as we think about greatness in the kingdom of God. Before we begin, I do want to make mention of the fact that we always have visitors, and for that we're grateful. If you are visiting tonight, we encourage you to come back to be with us at every opportunity that you have. We're always grateful to have individuals who come our way, some looking for a church home. We had some who identified with us today and we're grateful for that. And we wanna do everything that we can to encourage people to come and join hands with us as we strive to the best of our ability to share Christ in this community. Tonight as we look at Matthew, the 20th chapter, I wanna begin by asking the question, how would you define greatness in the kingdom of God? Sometimes we use the word greatness in a very loose way in connection with circumstances and events, people, if you please, in our world. It seems to me that in looking at the gospel narratives that there was a desire on the part of the disciples of Christ to be viewed as great in the kingdom, And so Jesus, in a very kind and compassionate way, sought to correct their misunderstanding of greatness in the kingdom. Sometimes we talk about preachers and teachers, and we say he is a great preacher. He is a well-known gospel preacher, and that's all well and good. But I have an idea that some of the greatest preachers in our brotherhood are men you've never heard of. Maybe they work and labor in places of obscurity. But they're great. Great not because of who they are or what they are, but they're great because of their mentality. And that is, they want the Lord to use them in service for him. And so tonight we look at Matthew, the 20th chapter, and the first thing I want to do is call attention to the request that was made to the Lord. As we look at this appeal, we find, of course, going back to verse 17, Jesus and the disciples were going up to Jerusalem, and the Bible says he took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Now I think that the disciples, by and large, misunderstood what Jesus had to say about his impending death. Crucifixion, and ultimate resurrection from the dead. But then if you look at verse 20, you have the mothers, or rather the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, two of the more prominent disciples of our Lord. As a matter of fact, James, John, and Peter are sometimes called the inner three. They had a very special relationship with the Lord. They had the opportunity to witness the transfiguration of Christ as spoken of by Matthew in Matthew chapter 17. Furthermore, they were privileged to go with Jesus to the garden of Gethsemane while he prayed in anguish over the cup that he was to drink the death that he would die on behalf of the human family. And so as we look at verse 20, we have Zebedee's sons and their mother coming to Jesus. And the Bible says that she knelt down before him to ask something of him. And so we think about the wishful petition and link with that the wishful petition. She is desirous of something here. Some would say that James and John encouraged her to go in their behalf to Jesus to make a very simple request. And so here in verse 21, the Lord asked, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom." Two things here. First of all, I think that there was a desire on their part for a place of preeminence in the kingdom of God. In other words, they wanted a place of stature. We talk about this wishful petition and then the wishful position. They were looking for a place of position in the kingdom of God, they wanted some notoriety. Now, somebody might ask the question how do I know that? Well, not just in this context, but if you go back and look at Mark chapter 9, you find Jesus and the disciples going to Capernaum. And the Bible says when they had reached a certain house, he asked a very probing question. What was it you discussed or disputed among yourselves on the road? Mark tells us that they kept silent. And when you look at at what Mark says about this particular account, you can understand to some extent why they kept silent. The reason being because Mark informs us that they had discussed among themselves who would be the greatest. You see, what they wanted was a place of preeminence in the kingdom of God. I really believe that they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. They had the idea that the kingdom Jesus would establish would be an earthly kingdom. Jesus wasn't talking about an earthly kingdom with earthly positions, places of importance or preeminence. In John chapter 18, when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, He said, my kingdom is not of this world. In Acts chapter one, following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus prior to his ascension to heaven, again, the disciples asked, Lord, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They had grave misconceptions about the kingdom of God. And so first of all, they wanted a place of preeminence in the kingdom. And then, secondly, they wanted a place of proximity in the kingdom. In other words, they wanted to be seated in a position or a place of honor. They wanted to be seated at the right and left hand of Jesus. Listen again to the request. Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. They wanted the best seat in the house, didn't they? I mean they were looking for they were looking for notoriety. Now the second thing I want you to see in our study is the reply of the Lord. Note if you would how Jesus deals with this situation. In verse 22 there is an acknowledgment by our Lord. And I guess one of the things that I need to to say as we we look at this it is true they had misconceptions they were confused about the kingdom of God what Jesus strives to do is clarify their misconceptions and so look at verse 22 Jesus said you do not know what you ask you ever had somebody make a statement like that to you You ask a question, maybe you have Intentions of doing something And somebody says you have no idea What you're talking about or what you're asking for I really think that was the situation here They wanted a position of honor And Jesus said you have no idea What you're asking on this occasion And so Jesus asked this question Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Now, Jesus first and foremost talks about the appointed suffering of the saints. When Jesus uses the term cup, he's talking about the cup of suffering that he would experience and that they would experience as his disciples. There are various usages of the word baptism in the New Testament. We talk about baptism for the remission of sins, baptism of the Holy Spirit. For example, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter two. But there is also a baptism of suffering. Jesus was going to the cross. He had just said that he would be scourged, he would be put to death, and he would rise again from the dead. And so he would would suffer. But what he wanted them to know is, look, you're going to suffer too. Do you remember in Acts chapter 5, the apostles were beaten. They had been commanded not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus. And the Bible says they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. I'm not sure they fully comprehended or understood that at this juncture. In the Lord's ministry, but they came to understand that. And then also, I think about the Apostle Paul. When Paul was called as Saul of Tarsus, Jesus said to Ananias, when Ananias questioned why he would want to use Saul in his service, he said, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. The apostles, the disciples of Christ, they had the opportunity to serve, yes. They also suffered for the cause. And so he talks about the appointed suffering of the saints and then the arranged seating of the saints. Jesus says to the mother of James and John, the to descent on my right and left hand, it's not mine to give, but rather it is for those whom my Father Has prepared. Now there is a third thing I want you to see. The resentment that was manifested by the other disciples before the Lord. What you have here in looking at this context, you have some men who were burning with indignation or anger. They were upset. So look at verse 24. When the ten heard it, They were moved with indignation against the two brothers. Now that's rather odd to me. They're mad at James and John because their mother has gone and made a request of the Lord to sit on the right and left hand in his kingdom. What do you think they wanted? I think they wanted a place of preeminence, a place of position. They wanted to be in close proximity to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, there are a lot of things that we could say about that. But here's the irony. It's almost like the pot calling the kettle black. They're upset with these men because of this request when they had already been disputing among themselves who would be deemed the greatest. In other words, they were mad at James and John because of this request when they had earlier been questioning among themselves, who's gonna be the greatest? You see what they wanted? They wanted notoriety in the kingdom. They wanted to be deemed as great servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were jockeying or positioning for power. That's really what it was all about. And so again, we go back to their motives. Again, I think that they were grossly, They they grossly misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of God. That's why I think one of the reasons Jesus said in John chapter 18, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom that Jesus talked about was spiritual in nature. Luke chapter 17, Jesus would say the kingdom of God is within you. So we are in the kingdom and the kingdom is within us. But now note if you would the requirement of the Lord. Look at verses 25 through 28. Jesus here spells out what true greatness is all about in the kingdom of God. And I want to begin by asking this question. How did the Gentiles view greatness? Let me ask it another way. How do people in the world view greatness? If you were to go down the street and just take a poll in this city or another city, What is it that defines greatness? What do you think people would say? Probably a lot of different responses. Some would say that greatness is defined by achievement, by what you've done, by the mark that you've left on society. Some would say that greatness is defined by what you possess in this life. In other words, by your bank account, the home that you possess, or In some instances, the homes you possess, your stocks, your bonds, your money, your land, etc. Some would say that the way to define greatness is to look at someone's position, their position of power. In other words, how high are they on the corporate ladder? So we ask the question, how did the Gentiles view greatness? Listen now to what Jesus said in verse 20, rather, verse 25. Matthew tells us he called them to himself. Jesus here wants to have a meeting. And one of the beautiful things, one of the great things about the Lord Jesus Christ, he took opportunities to teach people. And one of the things that strikes me is we have to take people where they are and teach them. Mark tells us in chapter four that Jesus taught the people as they were able to bear it or endure it. So sometimes you gotta take people where they are and teach them a little bit at a time till they get, till they get as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story, until they get the whole, until they get their minds around what is being said. So, Jesus said you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them in the kingdoms of men in the world if you please you have a structure don't you you have somebody who is the head man it may have been the case that what they were taught you know Jesus has just said to them that he's going to die that he's going to be resurrected from the dead It may be that they have in mind, well, who's going to be left in charge? Whatever the case may have been. But in the world, in the kingdoms of, of men, we have someone at the top. And then you have a chain of command. And there are authoritative positions. And those who are in positions of authority, they delegate to this person or to this group, to do this, and they comply. They delegate to another group, and they comply. But look at what Jesus said in verse 26. And here's the question. How does God view greatness? It's one thing to ask the question, how do men view greatness? Or how do the Gentiles view greatness? But really what we're interested, how does God view greatness? Listen to what Jesus said in verse 26. Yet it shall not be so among you. I think what Jesus is saying here is that in his kingdom, it's not about jockeying for power. It's not about position. I remember when I first got started preaching on a regular basis. And I was, as some would say, green wet behind the ears and so i went to a congregation to begin working i was the associate preacher some would say i was a little boy preacher and the pulpit preacher asked me to come into his office and so we sat down and he was talking to me in a very kind in a very kind way in a very humble way he said to me look in the church It's not about climbing the corporate ladder. And I think what he was trying to say to me is, if we're gonna work together and be effective, and if we're gonna be what God would have us to be in this location, we can't worry about position. We can't worry about who's doing this or who's doing that, and we certainly don't wanna be trying to climb the corporate ladder in the church at the other's expense. And so that stuck with me for over 20 years now. He made a great impression on me. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, Look, in the world there are positions of authority and there are positions of honor and preeminence, but that's not the way it is in the kingdom of God. There are no big eyes and little U's." And so we think first of all about the Lord's evaluation of true greatness. Jesus said, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your what? Servant. What's Christianity all about? It's about servant, about service. It's about being a servant in the kingdom of God. I fear in many congregations there are a lot of people that are asking the question what will the church do for me rather than asking what can I do for the church Jesus said that the pathway to greatness in the kingdom is by rolling up your sleeves and getting involved I want you to think for just a moment about the church the church is an institution that was ordained by Almighty God. The church is not the building. The church is the people. And if the church is gonna be what it ought to be, it takes every person working together, being on the same page, having a servant mentality. It may be the case that the church is not what it ought to be in some locations because people do not have a servant mentality. When the apostle Paul wrote to the saints in Philippi, he said, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus our Lord, who existing in the form of God counted not being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant. Jesus came to what? He came to serve. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, what you need to do is serve. Now, when we look at a local congregation, there are elders, there are deacons, there are ministers, there are teachers, there are song leaders. Everybody has a niche. Everybody is equally important. Yes, some of us may have more visible roles than others. But that doesn't mean that we're better than the other person. It doesn't mean that we occupy a place of preeminence, a great position in the kingdom of God. What we ought to do is view ourselves as servants. I think about preachers, and preachers, by and large, have big egos. It's just a fact. And When I look at what the New Testament teaches, what I need to understand is, I'm not preaching Mike Hickson. I'm preaching Jesus Christ. In days gone by, you used to hear people pray to the Heavenly Father in public. And they would pray for the one who was to speak. And they would say, let him stand in the shadow of the cross. That's what we ought to be doing. Standing in the shadow of the cross, preaching and teaching Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord and ourselves as your servants for his sake. Number one, Paul preached Christ. Number two, Paul was a servant. And if we want to be like the Apostle Paul, if we want to be like Christ, then we'll do what? We'll serve. We will view ourselves as a servant of the Most High God. And so, the Lord's evaluation of greatness is summed up in one word servanthood. The Lord needs servants. I mentioned just a moment ago that preachers, by and large, have big egos. And sadly, sometimes preachers in an effort to make a name for themselves will say or do certain things out of harmony with New Testament Christianity. And I think what the Bible teaches is the way up in the kingdom is down. Just be a servant, a humble servant of Almighty God. There are guys that have made a living writing people up in brotherhood publications so that they can make a name for themselves. And my response would be, shame on you. You want to have a name? Call yourself a servant. And so the Lord's evaluation of greatness and then the Lord's exemplification of true greatness. Jesus said, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Let him be your servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for the many. When you look at the life of Jesus from the beginning of his earthly ministry until the close of his earthly ministry, what do you see? You see the heart of a servant. Is it not the case that we are to have the mind of Christ based on Philippians chapter 2, verse 5? The answer would be yes. Is it not the case that Jesus said the servant is not above his master? The answer is yes. Is it not the case that there is something for each of us to do in the kingdom of God? The answer is yes. Is it not the case that there is something for you to do and something for me to do in this congregation? Again, the answer is yes. So my encouragement to all of us, pool our resources, our talents or abilities, and use them to the glory of God. It's not about making a name for ourselves, but rather it's about living in such a way so that we bring honor and glory to God. Because ultimately, that's why the church exists, to glorify God, Ephesians 3, verse 21. When you ask the question, how do you define true greatness? The world says true greatness is in position. It's in your bank account. It's in a lot of things. Jesus says greatness in the kingdom is in a life of service. Let me tell you what, in closing, I would say this. If the church is ever going to be what God would have it to be in the 21st century, we're going to have to develop a servant's mentality. That includes young and old alike. It may necessitate some of us building a bigger fire so that we can be involved in the kingdom of God. I understand that all of us have time constraints. I understand that all of us have obligations. There are things that we have to do every day. But don't don't forget about your service to the kingdom, your service in the kingdom. Don't forget about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to serve others in His name. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus pictures the great and final day of judgment. Some people may have the idea that if they just come to worship services, they're heaven bound. I promise you one thing a lot more to Christianity than just attending services. (coughs) Attendance is necessary. But if you look at Matthew chapter 25, you see people who went beyond simply coming to worship. Jesus said, I was hungry, and what did you do? He said, you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. He said, I was was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison, and you came unto me. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that those who inherit that place we call heaven they served day in and day out they weren't looking for a place of notoriety in the kingdom they weren't looking for earthly praise and adulation they were simply trying to do what the Lord would have them to do so I close tonight asking this question when you evaluate your life in light of this book that we call the Bible Are you a true servant? Are you really a servant? Are you involved? Are you doing what you can to expand the borders of the kingdom in this community? If you're here tonight and maybe you're a child of God but you haven't served in the kingdom like you know you should, maybe it's the case that you're here tonight and somewhere along the way, you forgot about being a servant of the Most High God, our encouragement to you would be make some changes. Become a servant. Jesus in the long ago said that the way back to fellowship is repentance. I tell you nay, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Sometimes we have to repent of our apathy, our indifference, the fact that we just haven't been what we ought to be. And then be faithful. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, if you've never obeyed the gospel, our plea to you is come to Christ. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that Christ died for us. In verse 6, Paul said Christ died for the ungodly. The means by which we enjoy salvation, it's Jesus Christ, because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14:6. And so if you're here tonight and you've never obeyed the gospel, we urge you to do that this hour. Come to Jesus believing that he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess his name before others, be baptized into Christ so that every sin can be washed away, Acts twenty two sixteen. 16. The Bible says that God will add you to the church, Acts two You'll enjoy all spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, 3. You have... The hope that we call eternal life. Titus 1 verse 2. If you're here tonight and you need to respond, would you do so as we stand and sing?